Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. It is time to express my gratitude again and thank everyone who has helped to support this show, either through your lovely words or through your monthly donations uh, and support through patreon.com slash indoctrination. I wanted to make sure also to name the people who are helping to support the show for $10 or more per month. So to Cynthia and Peter, Maureen, Brianna, Jake, Camu, Lillian, Sylvia, Corey, Anne and Richard, James, Linda, Stacy, Ann, Scott, Anastasia, Christine, and Alexandra. I really couldn't do it without you and without everyone out there who has helped to make this show a success and has helped to keep it going. I really do appreciate all of it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the second part of my conversation with April Snowcast. She was born into Scientology in 1982 and was in the Sea Organization, the name for Scientology's clergy, well, briefly as a teenager, at which time her parents gave up custody of her to the church. During that time of her life, she started seeing red flags within the organization, but it wasn't until her mid-20s that she finally stepped away for good. And only recently, in 2017, was she officially declared. Scientology's version of excommunication, in which friends and family tend to shun and completely cut contact with the individual. So although she's never been shown the documentation of her quote-unquote declare, one of her quote-unquote crimes, no doubt, is providing a space for others questioning Scientology to speak their concerns and traumas aloud and find help by speaking to others. What began as one-on-one coffee dates and phone conversations led to an eventual organizing of support groups and a group therapy session, a practice which Scientologists are usually forbidden to participate in. April feels strongly that discouraging psychotherapy and demonizing psychiatric medications is very harmful, and it's an abusive behavior that results in both the epidemic of suicide within the community, and the ignoring of disorders such as bipolar, schizophrenia, and it's causing parishioners who are suffering to go undiagnosed and untreated. Up until this point, she's kept the conversation relatively private, but having lost a great number of her friends and acquaintances to suicide and having a family member suffering in silence, she's begun to feel an obligation to speak out. Here's April now. You know, um, just to, to go back to, I mean, I, I don't want to overlook that you brought up about the suicides. I definitely want to go back to talking about that. And then I also had, had an idea about your brother, but you know, we, um, maybe, maybe to go back to the, to the suicides, uh, because that's definitely, that's definitely such a powerful statement that there's been so many. Um, and, and I remember, uh, in the eighties, there was that time magazine article, Scientology, the cult of greed, and it had, um, volcano on the cover. And, um, the, the author was just roundly harassed, um, before, during, and after it came out. And it was only really the tip of the iceberg that he was able to publish, um, uh, in the article. Because they cease and desisted him or? They, yeah, they had this whole team of attorneys who said, you can't say this and you, you have to take this out or we're going to sue. And they actually sued Time Magazine a million dollars per copy of that issue. Uh, they didn't win. But um, they just wasted their time and money. Right. Yeah. Probably all they cared about anyway. Right. So Richard Bayer, who was the author, really sweet guy, but then they really did harass him horribly. But what he what he put in the article, among other things, was about a suicide that had happened with a family son in Scientology. And 
it was one of the first times the public heard about this happening. Unfortunately, then the parents who were suffering with this loss, they were harassed because nothing like hitting people while they're down to show how spiritual you are. Um, but I think that it, it was really shocking to people to see that this could happen and also how the family was treated by the organization afterwards. Someone would not show you sympathy in the loss of your child. Well, and suicide is considered selfish in Scientology. So like, um, oh, there's so much to be said about suicide actually. And I'll just touch a little bit, but you know, in some religions, if you commit suicide in the religious ideology, you're going to a purgatory. You're not going to heaven. You don't get into heaven if you commit suicide. Right. In Scientology, um, you, we, uh, the belief system is that you lived before this life. You, you, you have a soul that inhabits, or they call it a Satan that inhabits your body that's inhabited a million bodies and is going to have and have a whole bunch of bodies after this. And this is just a blip. This is just a little blip, right? This lifetime is such a short thing of your, of your existence. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you the mindset I had in the Sea Org when I was 16 years old, I wanted to leave and I had made it clear that I wanted to leave and I wasn't really being allowed to leave. Nobody would let, would take me into, there's a, there are steps you have to go through. They weren't starting the steps with me. And I was put on what they called on decks, which meant I was stripped of my uniform and put into civilian clothing. So everyone knew something was up, but you're not allowed to talk about it. So you're just treated like crap by everybody. Wow. Wow. No one asks you and they're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say it, but here I am in my civilian clothing, not, not going to my job anymore. You just made to do sort of like menial labor work around the, the property and I'm 16 and I've told them I want to go and they won't let me go. And I remember very, very vividly sitting on the sixth floor of this building overlooking Franklin and um, just thinking, if I just jump, then they're going to have to deal with a mess on their hands. And my belief system at the time was, I'll just get another body. I'll just get another body and start over and I won't have to get, and I won't have to go through this, this crazy anymore. Right. Oh my God. I just got chills when, just when you said, if I jump, okay. And I'm just knowing, knowing get to get to that point. Go ahead. That's probably the worst I've ever been as far as, I, there's been two times in my life where I've gotten so down where I felt like suicide could be a, an option. And obviously I didn't take the, the leap. I didn't do, I didn't cross whatever that threshold is where you do the action. You know, I just had the thoughts but I know I'm not alone in that thinking. I know that a lot of people felt trapped. I felt so trapped. I even left. I ran away and I was brought back. <laughs> you know, I went home. I left. I got in a cab one day, like ran around the corner, took a cab home without any money. You know, told my mom, I'm not going back there. And she said, okay, why don't you just get some sleep and blah, blah, blah. And then um, someone ratted me out. <laughs> friend of mine ratted me out friend that doesn't talk to me anymore obviously still just as in it as now as she was back then um and I ended up having them come to my house and you know I said I don't want to go back and they said we're going to take you in session and don't worry I got back and I got put under watch meaning someone had to be with me at all times so it was just mentally it was hell mentally. It was a, it was a mental prison. I felt like it was a physical prison and a mental prison. Like you can get up and leave, I guess, but you don't feel like you can, you, yeah. you, feel like you can't leave and there's security and it is a bit uh, secure. It's secure. It's hard to just take off. You know, you're being watched. There's cameras, there's security guards. You don't right. have to and you're approached and questioned and you're not going to want to have to deal with it. And it's not, it doesn't feel worth that sometimes. To make for when it does and you finally leave and they track you back you're like definitely not worth it because now i'm in more trouble than i was before i left and i feel even worse and i can't even be by myself now <laughs> you know right and and you know if it were a group that really cared about you my sense is that if you ran away 
they would respect that that's what you felt like you needed to do, that you had gotten to that point. Or they would, right? Or they would come to talk to you and say, what's going on? What have we done wrong that has made you feel so horrible, so hopeless? They would take responsibility for it. It's like uh, a child in a different organization. If they suddenly say that they're feeling suicidal, they're not then punished for it. People who care about you want to want to rally around you and lift you up, you know, not push you lower. It's hard to say I'm positive because I can't go back and talk to people who are no longer here, but I know that there were people who committed suicide in the Sea Org while they were in the Sea Org who um, undoubtedly felt trapped. You know, it's it's hard to deny how um, it can be physically isolating at times, intentionally physically isolating. Um, and it can also be, um, just mentally very isolating, especially if you're not sort of, you don't really fall in line with the thinking or, or, um, the way that things are running. Like I've always been a bit of an outlier and kind of a, troublemaker when I was younger especially <laughs> like, I was gonna tell you how I felt from New York you know <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was a kid and I still and I treat I you know my superiors probably in a way where they were just like hell no um <laughs> I was a kid and I was 16 and and when I and I think about uh, just the thought that anyone would be able to be in such a, an environment as a child. I mean, as an adult, it sucks, but if you're an adult making that decision for yourself, you know, that's on you. If you're a child who doesn't know any better, who's being hounded by recruiters day in, day out, which is what happens to young Scientologists, and then you sign a billion year contract at the age of 15, in my case, or 16 or 17 or 13, your parents have to sign away their guardianship to you. Oh my God. You know what? I, I forgot about that. That is incredible. That's incredible. Right. So your parents, they pick you a guardian. They give you a, some C or guardian. You're not, you don't, you don't belong to your parents anymore. You belong to the organization in this um, sort of bizarre turn of events and um, whether or not, a billion year contract is binding. Um, it sure feels that way. It sure feels yeah. that way to a 16 year old brain. Like I can't leave. I yeah. signed up for this. I yeah. promised the rest of my life. And then the next one's here. Right. So then I'm honor bound. Right. I'm because it's my contract. Right. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> like you they've know. got a contract on me. When you're 16, you don't think like I can just break this contract. You know? yeah. Right. I mean, I think in the world outside, if you're going to be signing a contract, you need to have your parent do it if you're underage. But I think also now with these studies about brain development and that people actually don't reach full maturation now, they're saying till they're in their 30s, right? So uh, that, it is incredible to think about that, right? Are you saying that I might be mature now? (laughs) Yes. I still have the mind of a 15-year-old boy. But. <laughs> 15-year-old boy, I love it. I love it. But I think just as you were talking, I started thinking about what would bring people to that point of suicidality and think about, okay, just if you're in and then also if you're out, what would drive you? So if you're in or if you're in something like the Sea Org, first of all, dealing with being underslept you have trouble managing your emotions anyway on a good day if you haven't had enough sleep. And then your diet, I mean, thinking about if you're not doing well, right, you have to be on rice and beans. You don't have- You don't even have time to eat depending on your um, and and responsibility level. And there are children with responsibilities of adults, you know, Um, and you may not have time, you might might get your breakfast or you might pull an all-nighter. Like you, you might not, eat for you're not necessarily going to have breakfast lunch and dinner every day depending on your position incredible incredible and i think also 
when teenagers tell me about how they're feeling, of course I take it seriously, but I also know that in terms of their developmental stage and the hormones that are racing through their system, they're gonna be feeling things very deeply. And, and it's gonna feel a bit out of control at times, which make being a teenager even harder than it already is with all the changes that you're going through. And so then to sign a contract forever or to be thinking about, I just don't wanna be here anymore. And that you don't have protection around that. You don't have someone saying, you know what? You'll make it through this. I know how tough it feels right now. And I know how you probably feel hopeless and you probably feel like it's not gonna get better. Hang tight. You know, yeah. this is what people uh, go communicating through. it either because you don't want to be viewed as downtone. You know, um, I think we've talked, you and I, previously about the tone scale, and I'm sure you know a bit about it. So we're supposed to be above the middle, which is 2.0, which is antagonism. So anything above that, cheerful or interested, mildly interested, strongly interested, cheerful, enthusiastic. These are, these are pro-survival. They're toward our survival. They help us survive, or this is what we, we believe. And then anything below that, um, which would be like anger, resentment, um, unexpressed resentment, uh, covert hostility, grief. Um, I don't remember them like specifically, but those are a good chunk of them. Those are considered... Um, a, uh, contra survival or against your survival not for your survival you're not surviving well so like you always wanted to be and probably anyone who's not a Scientologist who walked in out of curiosity into a Scientology organization is going to be like they all seemed like really fake happy in a sort of a creepy way right it's very like hey how are you and how's life good to know ya like <laughs> I think that's because you're supposed to be uptone like we're just sort of like that uptone meaning on the tone scale on the higher end and um when you're downtone like depression would, would would definitely be like sadness and grief or somewhere in there you'd feel like that's where it fell it's um you're not surviving well and so you're sort of not viewed in a very positive light by your peers um if, if you're in that place if you if you're if you cry a lot or you're upset a lot or you're angry a lot you're you're just sort of viewed in a different way I mean you said something fascinating about covert hostility and grief that that's sort of on par that that grief is a real thing and it shows that you cared and it shows that you remember and it shows that you miss that person and but it's considered a bad thing because I'm sure within Scientology that that meant that you had a certain allegiance to others that was potentially going to, you know, derail you emotionally or in terms of your focus. Um, but I wonder also if that being not necessarily grieving, but being sad and like, well, I agree so wholeheartedly. And, and, um, who is it? Is it Tom Waits? Someone I was reading recently that said like, love and grief are two sides of the same coin mm -hmm. you can't have one without the other mm -hmm. and um, my dad died last year and I definitely like had a lot of I'm mean, still going through it I don't know if you ever like heal from the death of a, uh, a parent but um it's gotten easier but some days I'll still have like meltdowns you know and I have to remind myself like this is healthy normal like Human emotion and reaction is something we're told not to have as Scientologists. H-E-N-R. H-E-N-R. Human emotion and reaction. Don't be H-E-N-R-E. Like this <laughs> acronym city. But don't, don't have human emotions and reactions about things. And like, if you just look at the words, it's like, why? I'm a human that has complex emotions and reactions to life. And I should. I should. When my dad dies, if I don't cry, if I don't go through various stages of grief about it, maybe anger, maybe resentment, going through the forgiveness and whatever, like, I'm not human. I'm a little robot and I'm not healing. And that's a very um, important piece, I feel like, to healing is letting yourself have the feelings. And why am I, why do I feel mad? And why do I feel, you know, sad? And and searching for answers like that, hey, you feel sad because you loved somebody very deeply and it's painful to lose people you love. Very, very painful. And I think um, 
when you think about losing someone you love and also not knowing if you're kind of doing it right in terms of your reaction to it, you know, if, if you're not supposed to react and you're not supposed to have sadness and grief, then you don't feel like it's okay. Or you do it in a way where you have to kind of keep checking with people. Am I, am I doing it too much? Is it lasting for too long? Am I doing it the right way? Too long in Scientology. Yeah. Everything. I mean, I sure every negative emotion you're experiencing for too long. Um, but yes, in terms of grief, uh, and the, the, the passing of a loved one or a parent, I mean, my, my dad passed away many years ago, unfortunately, when I was 22, we were very close and it was a very hard time for the years after that. Um, but it doesn't hurt as much over, you know, over the years, but still every once in a while, I think about calling him. It's the weirdest thing. Like something happens or. Sad. And it's so bizarre. I feel like a crazy, but like, you can't see over here. I have a piano and I have my dad's ashes on the piano mm. because he was a musician. And I don't know. I have yeah. them right now. I don't, we're going to eventually scatter his ashes, I think. But so I'll play something or I'll say like, hey, dad, or like the other night I was watching some videos from his memorial because I just finally, um, the friend who had taped it gave me the tape and like watching through these videos and like, he's right there, you know, I don't know. It's just so bizarre because it's like, it's just his, his, his life in it, you know, but it's all I have left of him. That's the last piece of him that I have. Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense. And it shows that that relationship mattered to you. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to have to get rid of all of it, you know, just because he's not here anymore. Right. Um, because he's still going to be here in in you and a lot of things that you do and the things that you have in common. Right. Um, the the other thing to go back to the, the suicides, just because I want to kind of honor the, this. It's so big. Um, I think for people who have left or who are thinking about leaving, when, you, when you're taught that this is the thing that's supposed to be the answer and have all the answers, and somehow it didn't fix it, whatever it was, and it didn't make things perfect, then you feel like you're without options. Yeah. And you feel then hopeless, and it's sort of better to just leave, leave this body, you know, just kind of give up, and that maybe the next time around, it will be easier. And one of the things that makes me so frustrated about groups like this is that they so handicap people from knowing that they have other options and knowing that there are other formulas to follow and there are other teachers and there are other ways of healing. And you don't have to feel like if this medicine didn't cure you, then there's no other medicine. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And the sad thing for me is that the majority of the people who do end up committing suicide are very young. You yeah, know? Sure. I think like there was one older person I knew who committed suicide and I say older, like end of middle age, you know, already had grown children. Um, not like a elderly and a, a, you know, barely surviving kind of health wise or anything like that, or not that we knew. Um, and that was a very bizarre death because it was, no one could understand it, you know, but the majority of the people are young. And one good friend of mine was, she was 37 and she was probably the oldest of the rest, you know, the remainder of the people I know who have committed suicide um, over the last, you know, since I've been in Scientology that I'm aware, you know, since I was an adult and aware enough to understand um, the first person I lost or knew you know closely that died from suicide I was 22 years old um when he died and he was uh, maybe a year older than me and then a couple years later uh, an 18 year old uh, took her life and um you know you just it's generally pretty young people um, and maybe that's the case with suicide. I don't, you know, maybe that's like more of a, I don't know. I, I don't know. I do think young people, their sight is a little restricted. It's a little limited as far as like seeing what the future looks like. And like the idea that things do get better or change or like, you're going to get to a different place. Like you can have a boyfriend break up with you and then think it's the end of the world, you know, as right. a teenager. 
and there are people who take their lives over things like that and you're just like what you know sad like that's just so horrible that you don't realize like oh you're gonna have another one it's gonna be so much easier you're gonna break someone else's heart or right it's okay it's a normal part of life even though it feels painful in this case i think there's the duress uh particularly from people who are in the sea org that that really exacerbates um the those those feelings of isolation, those feelings of uh, suicidal thoughts, you know, um, and, and then there's the additional idea that you can live another life, you know, and you're, you're just getting another body and like those two things together. And then the lack of ability or, or just sort of the fear of seeking help. um, Like, that little triangle of things is just how do it's really hard to it's hard it's hard enough to deal with one of those things you know if you've got sort of the whole triangle then I think most people who are depressed are just gonna take the easy out or however you want to think yeah Right. And I, I agree with you. I think that's a really important point about that triangle with the three points together. I think that it, it is kind of this um, awful combination that, that makes it seem uh, like it would be a motivator to just end it. And I, I wonder also, because we're sort of getting close to the end of our time talking, but um, in terms of your brother, to go back to that for a moment, um, do you have contact with him now, or you don't? You don't. Okay. He um, he stays at my mom's, um, which is local, but um, he's isolated himself from the family, or really from anyone. Sort of, uh, mm-hmm. he doesn't really even um, really doesn't talk to any of us, and and. I don't know if he still talks to Jeff or not. Uh, Jeff is my brother in the Sea Org, but uh, they were very close. And, and I know that even after Mike was sort of kicked out of the Sea Org, which is a whole nother topic for a whole different day. But let me tell you how angry that makes me. Uh, but uh, I know they were still close and they would talk, you know, and Jeff was always able to sort of find Mike. It's really hard to find him. He just sort of like roams the world and has no, you know, specific place he's going and sometimes he'll be gone for a week and sometimes he'll be gone for a day and you never know but they had a very close relationship I don't know if they still do I mean I I hope they do I hope Jeff still sees him and he has one family member um for when as far as I'm concerned he used to write me letters. This is another reason I say, I think he's like stuck mentally in a specific time. He was, what he did for the organization was work in their central files for six years, writing letters to people in their central files. Anyone who's ever done any service at Scientology knows because they get mail forever. You never get off the list. (laughs) Even me, I'm not even allowed to be a part of it. And I still get Again, mail. Um, <laughs> you can't get off. <laughs> uh, they'll send it to a different name, a different spelling, but you're getting mail. Mm-hmm. So he did that for years. And then when he left, he would write these like bizarre emails um, to the family or maybe just to me. And I considered them what Scientology calls good roads, good weather, which means right. you're basically, you feel like somebody is suppressing you squashing you in some way and so you're just being like sort of like kind in this sort of fake way honestly or it's just like only talk about good things and the weather and like nothing important or deep so um he would send me these bizarre emails that was like hi you know to me and my husband like hey mr and mrs cass (laughs) hope all of your endeavors are, you know, treating you well. And this is a productive spring season for you. Okay. Yeah. Very formal. Very formal, very, you know, nothing real. Right. Yeah. 
strangely disconnected. Yeah. Disconnected. And so I would send him these emails back and say, oh, it's so great to hear from you. Um, we miss you, you know, oh, hey, your birthday just passed or whatever. We'd love to take you hiking. We'd love to take you bowling or what do you, you know, mom said this about you, you know, that you were into bowling recently. You know, do you want to go with our treat kind of, I never got a response. Not one time I emailed back to get a response and um, I still haven't given up. I, I, and, and he no longer sends me those letters, which I assume is because of my being declared a suppressive person from Scientology. So now he's not supposed to talk to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. I heard he had written some reports on various family members and Scientology is like the whistleblowing society of the world. Tell on everybody. Write, write reports on your spouse, your your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends. Tell all their secrets. <laughs> Say everything that's wrong with them. Never let anybody just live their life. Always meddle. Always stick your nose in it. And yeah, it's also so superior, you know, yeah. like I'm going to tell on you, <laughs> you know, it you're somehow like wrong for whatever, like, you know, people will write reports on someone's relationship. It's like, who's who can't, why do you care? It's not your relationship. Right. Right. Like, exactly. It's nobody's that. business, but also in these groups, information is power. Yeah. Yes. You're supposed to collect, you know, data on everyone. And I think also people are vying for positions and within the hierarchy within a group like this. So if it is part of the persona of the group that the more data you collect and the more you can tell on people, the more you're respected or whatever else, then, you know, you're doing it to kind of fulfill your own goals or just maintain where you are in the group. So people are protect, trying to protect themselves by throwing under people. Well, they people. have to. Yeah. You know, when they get onto their OT levels, the upper sort of levels of Scientology, they have to write reports on everybody, on everything they know. They have to. Like, and then they have to disconnect from people too that, that are considered like, um, the word that I always hear is disaffected. But it's mm -hmm. like, before I was declared, people stopped talking to me when they were doing their OT levels. And I couldn't understand why. And finally it was like, well, you talk to other people who are declared and you might like somehow insidiously try to like plant seeds of negativity, you know, in these people. And it's like, are you kidding? I mean, I, one of my best friends stopped talking to me. I was in tears and I told, and it's like, I'm not, they didn't kick me out yet. Like I'm not declared yet, right? I couldn't understand it. And it's like, well, I want to do my OT level. And, and my wow. ethics officer, the person who's like in charge of her ethics, um, said, I should just avoid you. That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Right. And then she yeah. was supposed to write reports on everything she knew about my life. The whole use of the word ethics, I mean, that's for many other hours, uh, but it plays with one's head. But I, the reason that I was bringing up your brother, among other reasons, is to kind of think about a way to connect with him if you wanted. But also, I think he's a great example of people who want to be able to rescue and they want to do what they can. And how much can you do? And you're limited, not only because of Scientology, but because there's an actual disorder that's causing him to be fearful of kind of being in the world and interacting. Um, Sometimes people find another language to use. And I was thinking of using the language of music with him and sending, like creating some music for him. And if he's a musician or he's musical, that he can then send you some music or he can put harmonies to the music and you can kind of speak through music without him needing to use words. Just finding another way in, it sort of, it, it it interferes also with the kind of cultic teaching of that very black and white. Like, you know, you cut people off or they're in your life, but instead you can sometimes find other ways to connect that feel safer. So, I mean, we can certainly at another time, if you want, go over ideas. At the same time, it is true that it is not your responsibility, uh, even though I know you have a good heart and you want to be able to 
to fix him um, and and help him and rescue him. And it, there 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 is not a lot that you can do because they're dual issues. I'm a homeless person, and I work a lot with the homeless. Like, and I see a lot of people out there, and there's a lot of people with mental illness. And I see, you know, like the guy muttering to himself walking down the street and looks crazy. And I think like that's like the future for him if nothing happens looks mm-hmm. like that. Mm, or yeah. maybe looks like self-harm or maybe looks like hurting uh, people around him and like that's the scariest thing to think about somebody that you love and you know isn't a harmful hurtful person like right you right. know it's like he's not even in there the guy that I've seen the last few times when I do run into him is not the guy I know like he's not even there and I had a I had a conversation with a friend who's bipolar and in fact, two friends who are bipolar and who are medicated and who are doing well in life and who are able to have like a a productive life, you know, despite having a pretty intense debility, uh, disability. Um, and, and one of them was explaining how, like when she goes into an episode, she's basically in a blackout and um like she doesn't remember any of it after and so like she's come off her medications at different times because her head starts telling her she's okay and she's not because she does need the medication in order to be balanced and it's quite a a trial to just get to the point where you're medicated and the cocktail you have works for you you know she gets there and then she's like but I'm fine like I've been good for a while and then she'll come off it and she'll get in like a crazy depression or she'll go into like mania um and when she gets in those places like she doesn't remember it she said I'll I'll like end up in the hospital or whatever I'll end up like super suicidal and then I you know people are telling me things I said and did and I don't have any recollection of it and I'm like wow the the thought that he's like living in a blackout has crossed my mind so many times like he doesn't even isn't there and it's just a very um that's a helpless place like I said you feel helpless you feel helpless you want to help but how are you going to fix that I can't like forcibly medicate somebody or you know yeah what is really important to do of course is to send whatever you need to that helps you feel like you're you're doing whatever you can but i think being able then to use your energy your wisdom your insight your bravery through talking about it to be able to help as many people as possible to sort of still put out into the world that you want to be able to heal and you want to be able to help and you hope one day that your brother gets what he needs and in the meantime you'll do what is sort of driven by i think your own healing but also your conscience to do and i wonder also just as we as we finish up are there particular messages that you wanted to be able to get across to people who are worried about seeking help or just you know some of the uh, some of the the ideas that you've come to realize about this whole process yeah i think that the first thing to know that if you are you know just starting to pull yourself away from scientology or any uh, high demand religion any cult experience is that it's a very slow process and it doesn't happen overnight and that my mindset here 10 years later is very different than it was 10 years ago my ability to not defend an organization that abused me is very different than it was 10 years ago where i still was very defensive about the organization the people involved my family and i didn't want to you know say anything to rock the boat my view about psychology my view about Um, psychiatry, uh, medication, like that has been a journey (laughs) and it will probably continue to be a journey because like I said, I can't imagine taking a medication on my own, but I, but I find that it would be, I I would like to see other people that I know need it taken. And that's already a step in the right direction. You know, Um, walking into a therapist's office was scary. Now it doesn't scare me at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, it, you know, baby steps are fine. 
scheduling a Skype interview with somebody if you're afraid of therapy is a good way to sort of not have to worry about that anxiety of being seen by an office or walking into an office or like the fear that we get in public. Joining, you know, uh, a group support group or, or uh, ther- uh, group therapy. And there, it's hard as a Scientologist to find those. You know, I know you've hosted them and I've had, you know, I've hosted some things myself, which are like uh, support gathering support groups. There are, there's Exeters on Reddit, which is a really cool uh, ex-Mormon who started a group of just a ton, a ton of people who've left various types, uh, similar environments. Um, and there's, uh, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of ways that I think you can start stepping outside your comfort zone. And once you sort of start putting your toe a little bit in the water, you realize like, okay, well, I can put my whole foot in the water now and then maybe I can go up to my knee and then it just feels so good that you just want to go for a swim <laughs> and it takes a little time. It takes a little time. It's a, you know, it might take years, but, um, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of people who have been through what you've been through, who um, not only want to offer you support and help themselves, but who you'll relate to and be able to sort of have that, um, just the relatability is so therapeutic, you know, just having a conversation with somebody who knows, who gets it, um, is so therapeutic. And I'm still baffled that like people who never grew up in Scientology but had a similar experience even I mean this is a very odd uh, correlation but it's talking to a friend who's a lesbian friend who said like coming out to her parents and then when she got engaged to her now fiance she said they didn't want to support her and she finally had to sort of like not have that relationship anymore because it wasn't healthy um but we found we found so much in common like in in uh dealing with our parents in certain ways and dealing with the family in certain ways and just the idea that you're different um and not lovable the way you are you know exactly or that you're the one causing the hurt that it's because you were born a certain way that you're then painting your parents right it's sort of blaming the person who yeah. actually is not it's doing not it's your fault yeah, exactly <laughs> Exactly. And it's very painful. Um, But there's healing in, in, in connecting and there's healing in talking. And so many people are just scared to say, like, I grew up in science. I grew up in a cult. Everyone's like, that's like, people think you're weird and whatever. But man, I have found that when I'm open and myself and genuine and real with other people, they're open and they're genuine and they're real with me and everyone has a story and so many people connect in different ways to our stories. I can have a healing conversation with a stranger on a train, you know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it happens if you're willing to sort of like let it happen. And there's a lot less fear in talking to a stranger on a train sometimes you know Mm -hmm. just like saying hey like here's who I am and like something is going on with me how's your day (laughs) exactly how's your day stranger on a train um I think also something so powerful about the story is that you're not only saying and you can you can start and end the story anywhere you want no matter who it is and um how long your train ride is um (laughs) but I think planes are a really good place (laughs) But I think that when you say, yeah, I was raised in a cult, that's, that's a good beginning. And that can also be the ending. But also <laughs> there's this other piece where you're standing before them, someone who doesn't look different, right, from anyone else and, and has their life, you know, together on paper. You might not always feel it inside. And I think a lot of people are move through the world in that way, no matter if they were in a cult or not, but I think there's something so powerful about being saying about saying about yourself. I can go through that experience, and I've been through that experience, and here I am. You know, here I can. Whether yeah. or not I'm okay today, like I woke up this morning. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I'm yeah. living life. I'm somehow right. able to maintain a job. Yeah. If you're not able to have those things, I think that the uh, and when you just said I'm in a cult. I remember like, I wouldn't have said that 
two years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Mm -hmm. I, I would have said I grew up in a cult because I would be so afraid of how it would affect everybody else um, without giving any, um, without respecting myself enough to be real with myself and own my own story and, and um, acknowledge that, acknowledge my truth, you know? I wouldn't call it a cult for a really long time until I started recognizing other cults and the similarities. And then, mm -hmm. and then once I started going down that little rabbit hole, that was a very freeing moment of like, wow, not, oh, I was raised in Scientology. I was raised in this kind of weird, bizarre religion. Not a lot of people know about. And, you know, you know, the blue buildings, the thing, like we're kind of weird little unicorn people. That <laughs> what are those kids that are walking around in suits like grown-ups um right yeah <laughs> but no but to really recognize that I did grow up in a cult my parents did raise me in a cult um whether or not they acknowledged that at any point in time like that's what it is it's a very large very powerful cult um compared to a lot of other cults that I've you know read up on um, and it's, although it's only been around for, a, you know, it's a young, young religion, as they say, mm -hmm. it's also, it's, it's been around quite a while for a cult, you know, um, it didn't end in a mass suicide or it's still there and we don't know how it's going to end. Um, but if you're sort of skating around the outside of it and like trying to keep quiet, yeah, I would say that we need that there's power in numbers you know absolutely <laughs> right yeah who actually stand up and say what they're thinking the more power uh we start getting on this side of uh, the fence so to speak right uh, right yeah there's a lot of people who are quiet mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. because it's scary and i get it i was quiet for a long time too very scary it, so, there's freedom though there's freedom in like speaking out there's a lot of relief in speaking out uh, relief I can't I wouldn't change it I would never I wouldn't change it not even not even the way things played out in my family mm. not even the way things played out with my friends I wouldn't change it I wouldn't do it differently it's really it's an interesting point right because that's what brought you to this point um and I think also just finishing up, and I hope we can talk again because I know that you'll you'll have more questions and or insights, and you know as as you keep going with your process. So I hope this is the beginning of of a couple of chats that we can have. But but I think to to really kind of come full circle, just in terms of people being made to feel scared of therapy. There is this fear, I think, a pervasive fear that as soon as you walk into an office or as soon as you have someone who's in a position of authority, you have to relinquish your power. And they then are going to take control. And right. it's the same thing with medication, that it's going to take you over as though you can't stop it. Um, and as though you can't just decide to maybe take half a dose instead of a whole one. You know, you still maintain the power. You right. still have a say. The therapist, I, I tell people this a lot who come into the office who are nervous. I will let them know I work for them. Yeah. I'm not in charge of them. They're hiring me to help them and they can fire me and they, they can decide I'm not helpful. It is not that I am going to be taking over their power. I'm giving them an opportunity to exercise their freedom. Right. And yeah. it really is all about that, that you have the freedom. Like there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of ability to heal. There's a lot of ability to grow with the help of somebody else. Like we think we can do everything on our own. And the truth is like, I can't do anything on my own. I barely can shower on my own <laughs> like most days. So grateful I have a partner, <laughs> seriously. But, um, but no, I mean, it's really hard alone to heal from something so traumatic. And it's hard to even acknowledge the trauma, like I kind of touched on earlier. It's hard to even say I was a victim of, mm -hmm. or that I was abused. And abuse comes in so many forms. Hard to recognize some of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it is. And, and they, they emerge sometimes over time when something triggers it, you know, or when someone else tells their story and you say, oh yeah, actually. Oh, that other, the, the lawyer meeting was like that. So one of the girls goes, you guys are blowing my mind right now. She's like, I had never thought I had abuse. And now you're saying these things. And I'm like, well, that happened to me. It's like, yeah, because you've just decided that you're not a victim of abuse. Because mm-hmm. who wants to be a victim? People don't like to label. No. Hey, to realize, to recognize, and especially when we were children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the worst. Right. Right. And you also, you can call yourself a victim of abuse or you can call yourself other things. You can say that you're a survivor of abuse. Um, and, and I think there are, there are a lot of different words that um, will help you feel the way you want to feel about it. And you get to decide now how you want to feel about what happened to you. Yeah. So it was wonderful to to talk to you i feel like this is sort of beginning the conversation because this is so there's so much to cover really and i'm i'm so glad we we started today and that you wanted to talk about it and i hope that it has a a a positive impact in the way also that you were really hoping i think it will i hope so too and i appreciate you It's my pleasure. It was my pleasure. And I will talk to you soon. I wish you all the best and um, and be in touch. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, great. One more thing before you go. I am so grateful to April for sharing her story with us. I know that it's something that has affected her on many levels and that she's going through her own healing and helping others heal and sharing her story when she can. But she still has the worry about her brother and all others who she feels are not getting the help they might be needing and because of her conscience, it weighs heavily on her. It is very hard to think about someone being kept from a potential sense of relief or clarity being able to access a higher level of connection in the world and functioning in the world. I know that there are many people who do not have the freedom to access the help that they need, either because they're in an environment that doesn't believe in it or support it, or because they feel there might be some stigma around it, whatever the reason. It's important also to address the fact that there are a lot of people who are able to access therapy, but don't because they're not quite sure how to approach it, and they're not quite sure how to begin. I want to talk a little bit about that today. What I've heard very often is that when people have been in a controlling situation, one that they felt very tied in with or one that they were raised in, they can feel a lot of conflicted feelings and then think that they should wait until their feelings are clearer before seeking therapy. Because how can someone help them if they're not clear about what's wrong? If you're in a relationship that's good a lot of the time and is also bad a lot of the time, you might feel like you have to wait until the relationship is bad most of the time before you go to therapy. But when people have left relationships with abusers or narcissists or both, or have left cultic groups or controlled environments or restrictive religious environments, they can have a more intense possibility of internal conflict, which can make them feel like they need to delay going to therapy because they're not quite sure how to make sense of the opposing feelings they are having inside. And then they don't know how to bring that up in therapy and if the therapist will be able to make sense of it all and then help them. So I want to give some examples about what I mean. When people are raised, for example, in a fundamentalist religious environment, They might leave because they've started to question the beliefs and the teachings and because potentially they were mistreated or abused or controlled in a way that they started to resent or that they were traumatized by. But upon leaving, they felt drawn to go back in at times because there was a part of them that still believed that that's where God resided. And by leaving the group, they left any possibility of a relationship with God. Or they might feel like they need to go back in order to be safe spiritually, or they need to go back because they've left their family or their community behind, 
and they feel alone and ill-equipped and unsafe in the world. People also who have been in relationships with controllers and narcissists can sometimes feel very angry and empty and resentful and used, but they can also miss being with someone who made them feel so special, who was so charismatic, who gave them the message that they could have been with anyone, but they chose to be with you. And they might miss being with someone who provided them with a high. Because when you're with someone who is hard to please and suddenly you please them, you can feel so satisfied by their smile or their praise and that kind of intermittent gratification that you get, that moment of suddenly being appreciated or thanked. It does feel so good because you've been waiting for it or working for it. And that high becomes a drug in and of itself that then you have to detox from somewhat. There are also people who will be coming to therapy who did not leave a group or a relationship of their own volition, but were kicked out. And while they've come to see that they're now able to live a life with freedom and more possibility, there can be an internalized sense of shame for having been kicked out. And because they were most likely kicked out before they had gotten to the point of making that decision on their own, and seeing the relationship or the group for what it really was, it's highly likely that they might still believe in the teachings, that they might still be drawn to the philosophies and the people there, and they might have a drive to work to make amends and show they're worthy of being brought back into the fold or welcomed back into that relationship. There are also people who leave a group because the leader mistreated them tremendously, but the other people in the organization had been their friends had been, as they call them, good people, or their family, or their surrogate family. And while they feel lucky to be away from their controller or abuser, they might also feel that they've done something wrong by abandoning the others who are still there. So how does one sit with a therapist and say something like, I was involved in something that turned out to be really destructive in my life, and it destroyed me in many ways, hopefully not permanently. And it made me doubt myself, and it made me dependent, and it made me feel scared about being in the world outside, and it made me have trouble relating to people who have never been involved in an organization like this, which is actually most of the world. And I'm so grateful to have an opportunity to start my life anew, but... I miss it, and I miss many of the people. I miss having the answers, even if they were false. And I miss that calm that came with being given the formulas to follow, even if they were wrong. I miss the sense of knowing. I miss that sense of safety, even if I was really not any safer there, and probably less so. And I feel betrayed by many of the people who sat back while I was being berated or abused and seemed to let it happen, but I also feel like I want to rescue them because I see now that the people in the organization were just part of the system and were being controlled just like I was. And there were moments where I truly felt like I was on a high, where there was a sense of community, a shared euphoria, a sense of hope, a sense of purpose, and what seemed like a clear path and now things feel unknown and scary and very confusing in my mind. And on top of it, I don't trust myself to make good decisions anymore, so I still want to rely on someone to make decisions for me. So I'm trying to take steps forward in my life, but feel like my great sense of loss, my anxieties, are pulling me backward. So yeah, how do you say that to a therapist? My suggestion is you say it just like that. Most of us don't live in a black and white world emotionally. It can be confusing and it's very human. Leaving a controlled environment with strict rules and guidelines about what's right and what's wrong with definitive rules about how you should feel in every situation, it can be overwhelming because you can have a flood of these conflicted feelings. Expect it. It's part of what happens. It's usual, and it's okay. You can still talk to a therapist about how much you were hurt by a partner, yet still sometimes miss them, and that you still might love them. 
you can still talk about how much you felt betrayed by empty promises and how much that let you down while still wondering if you were the one who let down the group by leaving it and if the promises may have come true if you had just stayed longer or maybe tried harder. So don't let these conflicted feelings keep you from getting help. It's okay to start by saying you don't know how you feel and don't have the words to describe it yet. Just start somewhere, anywhere. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds, thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.